Welcome to the Miko Pellet Hour. I'm your host, Miko Pellet. And um, I, my guest today is a very good friend, uh, a great young man, a great leader, a great activist by the name of Rafa Dabouish. He is from the town of Lakia in the Naqab in southern Palestine, what some people call the Negev sometimes. Um, he has been an activist for many years. He's been a friend of mine for many years. He's taught me a great deal about the Naqab and about the reality there, where some 300,000 Palestinian Bedouins live in some of the most horrible conditions uh, one can imagine, even as the Israeli settlements in the Naqab are some of the richest and enjoy some of the highest standard of living among Israeli citizens, the Palestinian Bedouin, who are also Israeli citizens, suffer from some of the worst discrimination and the worst uh, poverty can imaginable. And this is, of course, pre-October 7th. So I'll be talking uh, to my friend Rafat about the Naqab, about the situation in Gaza, and how it has impacted him and, and his community. So Rafat, thank you so much for your time, for your, uh, coming to speak to me again. It's good to see you. And uh, my first question is to you is talk a little bit about the connection between the Naqab, the people in the Naqab, the community, and the Gaza Strip. And the reason I asked this question is because you told me before about there's a strong connection between the people in Naqab and the people in Gaza. So maybe you can talk about that a little bit in historic and, and, and a familial family connections as well. Assalamu alaikum. Hi to everybody who's listening or watching. Uh, I'm also very glad that you host me as always. And that every time you have a new project or a new program, you're hosting me again. You make me feel special, so thank you so much. Uh, there is, I think, there's a lot to say, but uh, well, today the main case that is really urging is Gaza. There's nothing else that is important except for Gaza these days. Even though the past few the past few weeks have witnessed lots of home demolition, the comeback of the home demolitions in Al Naqab and the demolishing orders on Bedouin houses in the recognized villages when they stopped before because they were. Because the Israelis were trying to to convince people that we are all together in this war and they didn't want Bedouins to go protest and bring another trouble to them while they are committing genocide in Gaza. They wanted ease. Now, now when they think they are maybe going to be leaving Gaza sometime soon, uh, they are back to to getting busy with the Bedouins. And in order also to to uh, give Bingvir and the right wing activists and settlers some uh, feel of uh, refreshment because. The only racism they see uh, that is uh, sufficient for, for their hatred ideology is the one that is committed on Bedouins or Palestinians inside the 48 because they can go visit these villages and, and see what's happening in there. So they need something to be done to the Bedouins and to the Arabs in the 48 areas. So the connection between Gaza and Bir Sabah have been very uh, uh, widely spread historically since the, the dawn of Palestine in history. It's one area, one region was with one origin and one blood and very lots of uh, connected uh, family relationships uh, when it comes to the history and to the area. And of course, you know that for me as an Arab nationalist and for every Arab who likes history of the Arab world, which is called by settler colonialism, the Middle East, uh, which is a settler colonial name in the first place, uh, the Arab world is one big uh, connected land that has always been ruled by one regime until uh, until colonialism came to the area and, and split 
countries into Sykes Peak borders. So before all of that, Gaza and Al Naqab Bir Sabah and Hebron was one big area that is connected together and that it shared the same uh, the same origins and same tribal uh, management, the same tribal management that uh, that ruled in Bir Sabah and the tribal regime and the tribal law that used to organize people's lives was used also in Gaza and was used also in uh, Hebron, in Al-Khalil. So today, for today, we have thousands of families in Al-Naqab that have family members in Gaza. We have thousands of families in Al-Naqab that have family members, Palestinian family members in, in uh, Hebron. Many mothers, many fathers uh, are living in Gaza who belong to Al-Naqab or are living in Al-Naqab who come from Gaza. So it's a very one connected area. It, it was used to know that the center for political decision in the desert, in the south, in the desert of Palestine, is in Beer Sabah city, which is the occupied Beer Sheba today, and in Gaza, in the center of Gaza, which which is a region that has always been active through history. We know in Islam that was active uh, because the grandfather of Prophet Muhammad والسلام, has been living in Gaza. It's called Gaza to Hashim because Hashim, the grandfather of Prophet Muhammad, the grand grandfather of Prophet Muhammad, used to live in Gaza or visit Gaza or died in Gaza. Uh, let, me, let me interrupt you for a second because you just you just mentioned uh, many many important points. Um, the first point that you mentioned that I think needs we need to pay a little closer attention is that we um, you're you're seeing much more violence and much more racism perpetrated against the Palestinian Bedouin in the Naqab since October seven. Now again, what I know about the Naqab, I know mostly from you. And I know that before October 7, 2,000 to 3,000 home demolitions per year was the norm. And you're saying that now there are even more home demolitions and destructions. You also talked about the uh, unrecognized villages. So just as, as severe as the racism and the discrimination against the Palestinian Bedouin are, it's even worse in these towns and villages that are called unrecognized, which I think make up about half of the population in the Naqab, if I'm not mistaken. So, yes. so what happened on October 7th? How did this, how do you, how did you see this? What do you see after October 7th that is now worse in a little more detail? You know, it's the funny thing when you, when you mention it like that, is that seeing the media and seeing the discussion, especially in the States, by the way, you feel that history has started since October 7th. Everything has to be going around October 7, and it's like October 7, this big, the big thing that happened in the area. When nobody remembers, for example, the Gaza war last year, or the Gaza war the three years before, or or when when uh, the, the good Israeli president, the good face, Yair Lapid, wanted to make a campaign for his election, so he bombed Gaza and he killed around 600 people. Or a few years before, Bennett needed to do the same, so he bombed Gaza also. Or a few years before, when they killed 4,000 people in Gaza, the same. So this dates are not remembered like October 7 because Hamas is attacked for, for the first time uh, first uh, on Israel, made an attack on Israel. So we, yeah, when it comes to October 7 and the situation in here today, I think I will have, to be honest, the first month after October 7, the Israelis were so cool in Al-Naqab. They were very nice to the people. They were not demolishing any houses. They were putting all of these uh, uh, signs on the street saying we are together in this war and we are fighting together because they didn't want the Bedouins uh, to go protest or to make any 
any statement against the war on Gaza because they wanted quietness in the inside. They were scared to open a new front and they wanted to focus all of their bombs and, gen and, and genocidic, uh, gen genocide methods on, on Gaza. So they really wanted to, to flirt with the Bedouin community. So the first month was okay. Then, of course, there's nothing... There's nothing nice, fully nice with the Israelis. Nothing goes very, very nice all the way because at the same time they were trying to flirt with the community. They were taking all the activists or, or the people who are uh, act, actively speaking actively speaking for Palestine. Uh, they were taking them to jail, arresting them. In the week, in the first two weeks after October 7, everybody who was known to be uh, usually writing or, or protesting or, or uh, speaking for for Palestinian identity, and Al Naqab was taken to jail. I'm one of them, with all of my friends. Including, so we including, used to... including you. I just want to emphasize, including yes, yes. I was taken one week after my wedding. I, I stayed quiet actually because I wanted to get wed, so I didn't publish anything in the first week of the war. Um, even even though I do publish all the time, and yes, it it went peacefully. I was able to get married. I wasn't arrested, but three days after they remembered me, and then they took me from my. Uh, from my house. Anyway, it wasn't only me, it was everybody who's an activist. Our friend Ahmed Khalifa from Umm al-Faham, not from Al-Naqab, he's a lawyer, and he was taking, he's still arrested since the first week of October, uh, of October 7th, uh, and he's a lawyer, an Israeli lawyer, he works in Israeli courts. You no, know, again, I'm going to drop you just for a second, because you're saying, you're mentioning some very important points, and, and, I, and, I, and I want people to really, you know, to let it sink in. So we're talking about Palestinian citizens of Israel. There's this impression that the arrests and uh, and the racism and the apartheid only exists in the West Bank, in East Jerusalem, and the Gaza Strip. And now we're, you're talking about arrests of activists who are have citizens here, who are actually Palestinian citizens of Israel. So I think it's just important for people to understand that that's what we're talking about now, including yourself. And including many, many others who I know and I've met with you who are who are activists and have been arrested and so on. So go ahead. I just wanted to emphasize that point. So I was giving an example of Ahmed Khalifa. The important thing about the thing about the case of Ahmed Khalifa is he's he's a patriotic Palestinian uh, from the forty-eight Arabs, from us, an Israeli citizen, and he's a lawyer. He works in the Israeli court. He uh, he's a lawyer. So, and he was arrested and he's still arrested in jail. And we have reports of him getting tortured and getting beaten like all other uh, Palestinian prisoners and uh, suffering the same suffering they have been suffering uh, since uh, October 7th. And we have been, he he been hearing horrible reports about what's happening inside Israeli prisons. And uh, he is, and he is again, he's, an, he's a Palestinian citizen of Israel. He is from the city of Umar Faham, which is a large Palestinian city. Of of Palestinians who are citizens of Israel in in the northern part of the country. So we're not talking about the Nakba. We're talking about somebody who's who's from the northern part of the yes. country. And Al-Naqab, we and uh, al also Sheikh Osama Al-Ugbi, who is a, a, a an Imam in a mosque. Uh, he's a, also a patriotic Palestinian uh, uh, Sheikh, uh, a very respectable persona. He's also arrested. He has been arrested two weeks ago, and he's still in jail. Uh, I was, alhamdulillah, I didn't get arrested. I was arrested for a full day. I was interrogated by Shin Beit, the Israeli uh, intelligence, uh, with a, a staff of interrogators, and they tried to catch something on me. But alhamdulillah, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't put in jail. But still, people. What did they ask you? It's just the bullshit questions of them trying to to frame you for something. 
they have these people that we are talking about for example Sheikh Hussam al-Aqbi or Ahmed Khalifa they haven't done anything concrete it's your opinions that you are being arrested for if you speak your opinion loudly they will just frame you for something or give you an administrative detention which is a detention that they are uh, widely using against Palestinians and administrative detention is is taking you to jail without a court or without uh, real charges it's called a secret file for you أنا So can you can you describe just a little bit more? I know you don't like to talk about this, but describe just a little bit more of the day that you were arrested. What 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 did they ask you? What did they do? Talk about that a little bit more. I think the details are important. Yeah, you know, I've been arrested more than 14 times to today. It's yeah. uh, it's not there's nothing special about this arrest, but the special is um uh, the the atmosphere, okay? This the special situation is that these guys consider themselves to be at war today and they are saying it when for it was the first time i witnessed that when they came to my house the israeli police would go in my house and i'm telling them give me a a, a warrant that you can go into my house and they're saying uh, clearly we don't need a warrant these days we are just coming in uh, and they took me they arrested me they took me in the car and in the police station for six hours or seven hours without me knowing why are they arresting me in the first place and that was also new At least they had some makeup of Israeli democracy and law that they need to tell you why you're getting arrested. They would just write some uh, some nothing uh, excuse on a paper and give it to you. That didn't happen this this time also. Then I was taken to interrogation by the Shin Beit and they had a staff of Shin Beit asking me about my opinions and going through my podcasts and my Instagram account and uh, and my ideas and asking me about my ideas, trying to frame something for me because they have nothing concrete. I haven't done anything illegal. Uh, Anyway, if if illegal counts or legal counts in this state, so yeah, that was it. And then they just left me. But it was more of uh, we are watching you. So that's the idea of of uh, that that arrest. So yeah. and, you, and you're saying there have been, and I hear what you're saying about the dates, and I I know. I mean, you've said this before, and I agree with you. I, yeah, there's no question about that. But you're saying that like they're back with home demolitions now, even more. There. Yes. So what I was saying before, Miko, is that they were quiet for a month. They didn't yeah. demolish any houses for a month, which is a precedent. This never happened in wow. Al-Naqab. Then the second month, they couldn't hold it anymore. They needed to demolish something. They needed to 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 uh, propose their hatred and and to put it somewhere. So they started bringing more back uh, home demolition orders in on Bedouin houses. Uh, they started bringing back cops to the entrance of cities and 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 giving people uh, uh, tickets for nothing in order because they were losing money, so they're trying to get the money back from the Bedouins. So this is also a method of punishment for the community, uh, giving people sp speeding tickets and then and, and surging cars and taking cars of Bedouins. And uh, this is also a way of robbery that they use. They would just give, give you a ticket for something just to get money from you because they're losing lots of money, killing people in Gaza and buying bombs. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, many methods to punish the community. The main one for them, because the people, people like Smutrich, the Israeli minister, 
who was before the head of Regavim, the racist organization that is considered that's working only to to make Israel demolish more, more Bedouin houses. And that was run by by Bitzelel Smutrich himself, who was uh, a minister in Israeli in the Israeli government today, do not feel their fulfillment for fulfillment except by demolishing Bedouin houses. Uh, in the side of killing Palestinians and genociding them in Gaza. Uh, so yeah, they're back to home demolitions, they're back to arresting people and to putting people in jail. Uh, before they wanted it to be quiet. Now I don't think they care anymore. Uh, they have many unemployed soldiers who they are not putting them in Gaza. Maybe they're scared to put them in Gaza uh, and they want to use them in a Naqab. So yeah. So we talked about this before, but I, I want you to talk about it again. And that is this idea of unrecognized towns, unrecognized villages. So the conditions in the towns and, and villages throughout the Naqab, the conditions in which Palestinians live, the Palestinian Bedouin live, are, are very difficult conditions. Half of those people living in unrecognized towns, what does that even mean? Okay, so the word unrecognized means that it's invisible for Israel. It means it doesn't show in Israeli maps. We're talking about 37 villages that uh, hold more than, now it's going to be close to 200,000 Bedouins. 200,000 uh, people. It's going to be close to that number. Last wow. time it was 170,000 Bedouins. Uh, and it's, we are a very growing community. Uh, so it's these 37 towns have are not shown on Israeli maps. So when rockets in the war fail in them, they fail into open areas with no what's called Iron Dome, no shelters. Uh, and the the life of these people with no war is them having no electricity and no infrastructure and no water. No ambulances would go in there or fire uh, fire trucks would go uh, if a fire happens in, in the village. The only services that these villages have are made by the people. And when they create services, the Israelis would come to demolish them. The, the When they build any infrastructure, the, the Israelis would demolish them. The only time the, the people of the unrecognized villages see an Israeli is when the Israeli police come to demolish homes. Uh, we're talking about in the past six years, and uh, since uh, in the past six years, more than 14,000 houses were demolished in, in Al-Naqab. It's around 3,000 houses each year are being demolished by Israel. That's more than what was demolished in all the Middle East in the same areas, in the same, in the same uh, time. It's interesting. I, I want to interrupt you again just for two things. One, we drove one time. One of the times we drove you know, into uh, an unrecognized village, there's no road, there's no sign. You just know where they are. So you pointed me. We got off the main road. And I was in a rented car and I was driving very slowly. So you made fun of me, but there's no road. It's all gravel. It's all dirt. And you were making fun of how slow I was driving. But we were driving quite a ways, several kilometers in an open space with no signs, no road, other than you knowing the way and knowing where, the, where, the, where this village and where these people live. And there is, like you say, there's no there's no infrastructure. There's no there's nothing there. Just people are living there and they've been living there for a very long time and they refuse to move because it's their land and it's their home. And um, and again, the ambulance won't do that. The emergency services won't make that effort. They won't drive to these places. But they do but get even home. even the places, even the underground villages that's that are on the main street. You saw some of these villages. Yes. The ambulances would not go in there too. Not because there's no 
uh, streets because these are Arabs. They don't care about them. They would ask you so to take so the so guy to the main street. What? So no emergency services, fire, ambulance, no, no emergency services. Um, and But they will go in there to demolish a house. Yes. So are they expected to apply for Welcome a permit? Or what are they supposed to do? How is it? What? In other words, they can't apply for permits because they're not recognized. But if they there build, no, either way, when they no, build, there is no organization, there is no governmental organization in Naqab that's allowed to give building permits to Bedouins. There's no such thing. There is no place to go to in order to get a building permit. But you're saying um, still this is a community that's growing. So that means they need more housing, more schools, more services, but they're not getting any of that. And the Naqab yes. is also the Naqab. The bureaucracy that deals with the Naqab is different than other parts of the country, right? Yes, the we have a military regime of our own. The development of the Naqab, whatever it's called, the development of the Negev, what is that? Well, in Al-Naqab, there is an authority that is focused on dealing only with the Bedouins. It's not with the Naqab, it's with the Bedouins. Because we're considered to be the barbarians of, of Palestine. So we have a military organization that's called the Authority for Developing the Bedouins. That's so colonial, by the way, when you see it like that. Developing uh, the Bedouins, not developing the Negev, developing the Bedouins. No, developing the Bedouins. We are not considered to be the Negev. We are considered to be thieves, stealing the land of, of the, the Negev from people who just came yesterday to the Negev. Anyway, uh, so the, the Authority for Developing uh, the Bedouins, the Bedouins is an authority that has its own military uh, police unit that is focused on demolishing houses and taking what they call taking more land back to the Israeli state uh, using its own UAV unit, uh, which is a unit called on the name of the uh, military campaign that occupied the city of Bersa and occupied the Negev in the, in the 48. Uh, the authority uses many weapons in order to, to kick Bedouins out. One of them is budgets, for example. The authority has the permission to not allow governmental budgets to go into Bedouin municipalities in the planned towns, except if they accept to host more Bedouins from unrecognized villages. If you can explain that more to people. Okay, let's, let's, slow, let's slow this down. So, yes. So the Bedouins... Ex being expelled from their land and moving into these townships. I think you call them townships when we spoke before. Yes. And we, call, we call them refugee camps or ghettos, if you want. But yes. Because they often look like refugee camps, actually. So so if they, so if these people who are kicked out of their land in the Naqab are willing to go into these other towns and the towns accept them, then these towns will receive budgets in order yes. to build. Yes. We're not talking in about... order to build, in, in order to, to open a new building areas for a newlywed couples in my village, Lakia, which is a planned town, for example, a township, uh, you need to accept that they will bring, for example, maybe 5,000 people from outside to get building permits for 2,000 people from your village. You get that? Where's everybody supposed to live? I mean, it's a very small town and I've never seen massive... Where's everybody supposed to live? Project. I tried to answer that question once. I think the only answer I got is Marsh. Okay. And we have to pay for the rocket. Because the rocket to get to Mars. But I've yes. I've never seen in all the times I've traveled in the Narcab with you, which is many, many times, I've never seen once buildings being built, apartments being built, any kind of infrastructure being built. And yeah, I've is, seen it in the city of Bersever for Jews. But you see this in the settlements in the Jewish in the is Jewish Israeli settlements, you see you see building all the time. 
and this is not this not this happens in other Palestinian communities. But so, what are people expected to do since the community is growing? You just got married, presumably. You know, inshallah, you will have children soon. What are you supposed to do? Vanish. So, Miku, I, I really have no answer for that. They just the idea is that you might get uh, five hundred meters to build a house at some point, but you'll need, for example, to go. The, the Israelis, you will need to go to the Israeli uh, authority for developing the Bedouins and sign a paper that says that you drop any ownership lawsuit or any ownership right on any land that you inherited from your grandfather, um, even if it was a thousand dunams. Uh, long and the only second they would recognize that you used to own something is the second that you are dropping that ownership in order to get a 500 meters from them okay I, we have to stop right now and take a break if you're just joining us this is the miko pellet hour i'm miko pellet i'm interviewing my friend the activist from the southern palestine from the naqab uh, and we are going to return in just a moment please stay tuned stay with us Thank you for joining again. This is Miko Pellet. You're listening to the Miko Pellet Hour. I'm speaking to my good friend, Rafa Taboesh, from the Naqab, from Palestine. And before we left, you made an incredibly important point about your rights for land, your ability to, to get land to build a house. Can you talk a little bit more about what you were saying? Uh, because I think you're making an incredibly important point that people need to um, people need to understand. Okay, so what we're saying is that the fight in Al-Naqab is not on services. It's on the ownership of land. The Zionists do not want any land to be under the ownership of any Arab, Palestinian, or Muslim. And let me just, again, I'll interrupt you just a second so people understand the the Palestinian Bedouin and the Naqab all had owned their land. They were, they were, they were, they, they were in, in, engaged in agriculture and so on. So they had their own land. And the state of Israel has been taking their land for a very long time. And now the struggle continues between the Bedouin who want to maintain, the Palestinians who want to maintain their land, and the state that wants to take their, away their land and get rid of them. So I'm sorry, go ahead. And put settlers, white settlers in place. Today, they are trying to put Ukrainians in place. So that's new. Well, actually, if I went back and I wanted to open a ranch in the Naqab, I would get land very cheap and water very cheap, right? And I could develop, I could grow peanuts or something, whatever I want. Yeah, man, you can ask for my grandfather's land and maybe give it back to me. That would be good. I think that might be a good plan. I, I agree with that. So I mean, this is this is the reality, and and the Palestinian Bedouin who have had owned this land as far as time goes back goes back are not allowed to engage in agriculture or build their own homes. Yes. Go ahead, please. Okay. So the idea is that the Israelis do not uh, admit you know your ownership on land, not on papers, and not in the Israeli court. They they try always to force a reality by demolishing your homes or trying to plant trees on your land in order to push you to go to Israeli court to ask for an order for the Israelis, for, for example, the GNF, the Jewish National Fund, to not touch your land. When you go to an Israeli court in order to get that permit, the Israeli, will start, uh, the Israeli court will start researching the ownership on land. In this case, they will use many precedents, and then the whole Israeli law that is made on uh, proving that it's made on preventing any Bedouin to prove the ownership of the land. Well, the only second that the Bedouin, that the Israelis would admit the ownership of a Bedouin on its land, on his land, 
even though his ancestors, all of his ancestors lived in the same land for, for much longer than Israel was established. The only second they would admit that is the second that they will make you sign uh, a dropping paper, uh, that a paper that you are dropping your ownership on that land. They will say, for example, Rafat has dropped his ownership on, for example, a thousand dunims of lands that he inherited from his grandfather. And that's, and that's it's called uh, settling. That's called, uh, uh, that's a contract that you would drop the ownership and then you will get, for example, 500 meters to build the house of your own. So they would not admit that you owned land in all of the phases of this process every office that you would go to 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 prove your ownership they will not admit that but in the second you drop that uh, lawsuit they on the paper they say he dropped his ownership on his land they would admit that so the only way the only time they admit that that bedouin palestinians own land is when they ask them to drop their rights to give up their yes. rights in return they will get a small a small piece of land where, where they can have a house yes. um now you, you, I know you studied law, so you know the law very well. The um, there's another issue with land. What, well, let, let's talk a little bit about the history of what happened in 1948 with the Naqab, with the Bedouin in the Naqab, where they were allowed to reside. Now this whole change, and then I remember you telling me about how they would give the land that belongs to one family to another family, and sometimes they would give the same piece of land to several families, creating a great deal of, of pressure on these families to somehow settle this problem that they had nothing to do with creating. I think this is, I think this is, and the reason I'm asking about all this stuff is because I think it goes to a point, if we're talking about the law, it goes to a point that is connected to two crimes against humanity. One is the crime of ethnic cleansing, and the other one is the crime of genocide. And I'm not only talking about what's happening in Gaza, I'm talking about what's happening in the rest of Palestine. So can you describe what took place and this whole okay, process? So before occupation of Palestine in the year 48 and the established in 1948 and in the establishment of the Israeli occupation state, there were more than 95,000 Bedouins living in all the Naqab area, all the uh, Bir area. the entire 50% southern part of Palestine. Around 60% the southern part, part of Palestine. Since Al Fallujah, from Al Fallujah in the north, which is Kiryat Gat settlement today, to Ilat, which is Umar Rosh Rash historically, that's all in Naqab. These All of these lands were owned, lived by Bedouin tribes. Every tribe had its own land and it was always known which land belongs to what tribe. These lands were uh, registered in the British mandates papers and in the Ottoman Empire's papers also. And both uh, states, both regimes would uh, acknowledge the, the ownership of Bedouins on the land and acknowledge the tribal law as the the the, uh, the management regime for civil for civil right and, and civil uh, life of, of Bedouins. All of that changed when occupation came, when the Zionist movement came to Al-Nakab. Previous occupiers of Palestine recognized the rights yes. of, of, the, of the Palestinian Bedouin to their land. Only when the settler colonizers came, as the Zionists, which was a settler colonial project, came, that changed. Yes. And of course, I would refer to a great book on that matter. It's The book is called Bedouins of uh, the Naqab, 100 Years of Resistance and Politics for Mansour al-Nasasri. 
uh, a scholar book that came from uh, Exeter University in, in the UK. And it has all the facts and a great study about things and papers from the archives of both both states. Anyway, so... The name of the book again? Uh, Bedouins of the Naqab, 100 Years of Resistance and Politics. I have it here somewhere. I wish I, I could pull it out, but I'm not sure where it is. But I do have that book. It's an excellent book, yes. Yeah. So this was life all along in, in, in Naqab. The life for a proud community that's living on their land, agriculturally, living uh, that had a great connection to to the land. That's not only a, a connection of living. The, the Bedouin society would respect the land. The Bedouin society would love the land, and and there was nothing, never to be a dispute on land was registered by two Bedouin tribes or two Bedouin uh, individuals. Uh, then also the Bedouin society would have a great connection with animals, with camels, with horses, with the with the trees, with the nature. With that was the life of of these people, the, the Bedouins, and they also had a political participants, and they were part of the great Arab Revolution, led by Sharif Hussein against uh, the Turkish Empire, and uh, were also uh, a part of the revolution against the British management because they had they had they were always trying to take part as as part of the Palestinian movement to the deciding of the fate of the Palestinian people and of the Arab people and all the Arab world. So what happened in the 48 is that when the first Zionist movement came, they in Al-Naqab, and the problem with the Naqab was registration because 90% of the population of Al-Naqab was kicked out of their original land from Al-Naqab, leaving only 10%, around 10,000 people only in Al-Naqab that stayed after the year 48. In the, in the year 48, Tens of massacres, which are part of the ethnic cleansing crime, and some of them are mentioned in Elan Papi's book, uh, Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. Uh, tens of massacres. We have uh, the knowledge of more than 24 massacres in Al-Naqab only uh, that we were inherited as stories from the grandfathers known about. Uh, in Palestine as a whole, without Al-Naqab, there were 74 massacres, genocide crimes, were were uh, were registered, were uh, documented in, in Palestine that were made by, by the Israeli Zionist gangs. So they kicked 90% of the people and the rest who stayed, they, the Israelis would move by the army to an area that makes only 4.55% of all Al-Naqab area. That's called the siege area. That was what happened in, in the 48. This is area is only 4.5% of the whole Naqab area, which was owned by the same population all the time. What's happening today is that they are trying to take also the area of, they were trying to take also the, the area of uh, of the siege. Some of the 4.5%. So 90% of the Palestinian Bedouin were, were, were displaced, 10% and 95% of the land was taken, and the ones that remained received 4% of the entire land of that community in which they were allowed to live, and that's it. Yes. And that's, okay, all right. And, they, and during the military regime, which is the first 20 years after the 48, these people lived in the 4.5% area, the siege area, as you would think of concentration camps. They lived under uh, military regime and military patrols, and if anybody would leave, uh, their land after 10 o'clock, for example, they would be shot on, on the desert and the place, in many cases like that. Uh, so, yeah, so the Israelis the, the practically demolished the community structure that was in Al-Naqab. They demolished 
the the heritage structure structure by taking the land and and killing the animals and for example one of the laws that makes uh, that shows the example uh, one of the laws that shows the example is of demolishing the life of Bedouins is the is a very funny law which is called the black goat law the black goat is a law made by Israelis during the military regime that would prevent the raising of black goats in the Naqab, saying that black goats would eat rare plants. For Bedouins, we know that black goats and white goats eat the same plants. So why did you prevent the black goat and you didn't prevent the white goat? The idea was that Bedouins are, make their tents and their homes, their tradition Bedouin homes, from black goat hair. So they wanted us to stop building houses and to just vanish, as we talked before. But uh, then it, it moved backwards on Israelis because people started building concrete houses in these years because they didn't have any hair left by goats. So now, today, moving back to, you know, current times, the population of the, of the Palestinian Bedouin community has grown substantially. There's some 300,000, if I'm not mistaken. And, but the resources in the Naqab, which, by the way, is called a desert, but it's a very fertile desert and very good for agriculture, is, are given to the Israeli settlers and to the Israeli settlements. And you showed me once, we stood next to Tel Sabah. And it was right across from, I believe, Omer. And yes. one side is this very wealthy community that enjoys some of the highest standards of living. And, and the Bedouin community is one of the poorest uh, communities in the entire country. So I that's... I compare that to the Black Lives Matter movement and the Black struggle against uh, against white uh, supremacy in, in the States. The idea of, of ghettos next to this, uh, this very rich white neighborhoods this is the, the model of, of Tel Sabah, the Bedouin Palestinian town next to the uh, the European Jews who are living in, in Beverly Hills of, of Israel, just one kilometer away. Yes, now uh, I'm going to tell a little story. The, the name of Kibbutz Be'eri came up a lot after October 7th because, uh, because of what took place there and how the kibbutz was almost destroyed. Yeah. I had cousins, I always had cousins in Be'eri, and as a kid, we used to go there for the summer, we used to go there for weekends, we used to spend a lot of time there, it was a lot of fun with my cousins, with friends, and, you know, the swing pool and all of that, and nobody ever said anything about Gaza, nobody said anything about the Naqab, nobody ever said anything about whose land this was before, and so on, it was a very wealthy community, very, very wealthy and very beautiful community, and of course, they paid a heavy price now, and, um, can you talk a little bit about that, about how these communities of settlers, you know, enjoyed this wealth of the Nakam, never paying any attention to the fact that the land, the water, the resources were stolen. And many of the people who used to own the land were either now in, not allowed to come back for sure. Some of them are probably in, the, in Gaza as refugees, some of them in the limited areas that Rico, were given. A very so case that explains, that explains apartheid in the Nakam, a very clear case of apartheid that shows the, the what the Israeli Jews are giving next to what the what's taken from the Bedouin Palestinian is the case of Umm um al-Hiran. Umm al-Hiran was a Bedouin town that was uh, um, decided to be demolished in order to build a Jewish settlement on its place. When you look at Umm al-Hiran and when you Google Umm al-Hiran, you will see a, a Bedouin town existing on one hill in a very desert area with lots of hills and mountains that are empty. The only mountain that was decided to build, the Israelis decided to build the settlement on it, is the one that has a Bedouin village in there. 
the Bedouin village, the Bedouins in Umm al-Hiran were removed in the 48 from their original land by the Israeli army into a very uh, desert area with nothing, no water, no electricity, nothing to, to have, no streets, no roads. They stayed there for 60, 70 years in that hill with, with no help at all from the Israeli government. They had fires eating people in, in Umm al-Hiran and the Israeli fire trucks were never coming there. They had people dying in, in the village, the Israeli ambulances were never there. And when they decided to build the settlement, the Israelis, they would build it on top of Umm al-Hiran and they would even steal the name. They would call it Hiran because they are very creative, uh, the Israelis, and they have never stolen anything in their lives. Anyway, so the case of Umm al-Hiran, that was not the funny part. That was not, this is not the part that explains that explains this. The part that explains apartheid is that when you sit in Umm al-Hiran with no electricity, no cellular uh, uh, connection network, no water, no sewerage, no, nothing, you can find Wi-Fi in the middle of the desert. This Wi-Fi network is called Golden Dog. Golden Dog is just a few mountains away, you would see, uh, uh, a few hills away, you would see uh, a farm, a lawn farm that extends and has a wire around thousands of dunams of land. This farm is owned by one Israeli family. Only one Israeli family owns all of this land. And the project they opened in there in order to get that land was a cemetery and a hotel for dogs. It's a pensioner, you call it? Pension. Yes. It's a hotel for dogs that if you want to go travel abroad, you can bring your dog in there. If your dog dies and you want a good funeral and you want to bury the dog, you can bury it in there. They have electricity. They have water. They have uh, cables coming to, to the farm from the, in the middle of the desert. And next to them, there are a thousand Bedouin Palestinians who have Israeli citizenships that have nothing. And they're getting their home demolished in order to build a settlement for French Jews that they brought just few, just one year ago to, to put them in their place. So this is, this is what it is when in Al-Naqab and in Palestine. This is what apartheid is and this is what occupation. This is the real face of, of the case. It's a democracy only for the Jews and it's, uh, it's civil rights only for, for Israelis. And even those, if you are a Bedouin that you do not want to feel Palestinian and you're trying to, to, to mingle and then to, to, to forget your identity and become a part and become a traitor to your community and to your people and become a part of the Israeli occupation. And if you do the maximum to do that, what's the maximum, for example, serving in the Israeli army? Uh, we know cases of Bedouins, which is a very small number of people who served in the Israeli army and, they're got, and they got, and because we don't have male in, in unrecognized villages, these people lived in unrecognized villages, didn't have mail, so you'll have to go to Beersheba to get the same mail. So you have lots of mails coming together. These people served in the Israeli army, they got their recruitment order to go back to serve in the army. After they finished their time, you need to go every year. And they got their demolishing order at the same mail for their house. Okay. So well, even if you serve, if you become your dog, if you become your... A demolition order and a draft into the army at the same time. Yes. You know, people talk a lot about this. It's still people, believe it or not, people still talk about how the Zionists made the desert bloom. And uh, of course, we know in the Nakab in particular, this is, I mean, it's not true anywhere. But you mentioned something that I want to touch on. You mentioned the city of Gaza, the city of Barisabah, and the city of Hebron el Khalil, and this connection between these cities, which are major cities in the southern part of Palestine that are connected yes. strongly to the Nakab. Um, and again, I think, can you talk about that a little bit more? I think people need to understand. I'll give you just a tip about the, the making the desert bloom first, because it's important to explain that case. Okay. So the idea that, that Israel is trying to, to the propaganda, the Israeli propaganda about Al-Naqab is that Al-Naqab is a desert. 
تمام وي نو ذاتس نوت ترو وي نو النقب از نوت ديزرت بس ديزرت اوف فلسطين اكزيستس ان النقب بس نوت اول اوف النقب از ديزرت از 60% اوف ذا هول هيستوريكال فلسطين ذاتس النقب ذا نورثرن نقب ويتش وير اي ليف از اول اجريكلتشرال جرين اريا This area is today taken from Bedouins by planting GNF trees, European trees that have no connection to the land. That when you go to the ecosystem, these are considered to be occupational species, like the the Israelis, uh, invading species. That they are killing the the original trees of the people, and they are, they would destroy the agriculture of Bedouins in order to put the European trees in there in order to take the land to put uh, to create a status quo. Uh, reality that you they would go to the record and we say we already invested money we already put the trees in there they would take this take this picture as they have agriculture the desert which is not true because they cannot agriculture the bedouin desert and these trees would not go uh, would not grow in in the bedouin desert anyway uh, if you find a tree in, in the Naqab desert you feel you're in heaven this is this is not really true and the agriculture the 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 greenwashing is used also for propaganda and it's used also for taking land and it's also used to hide uh, uh, the original Palestinian towns that used to be here. They would build these trees on top of Palestinian towns that they demolished in the 48 in order to hide the ruins and the history of, of the Palestinian towns. When you go through these forests that they create, that I have forced, you would find Palestinian towns that are ruins in the middle of these, of these trees. Uh, so yeah, when it comes to we're talking about the connection also between Gaza and the Naqab and the Khalil. Okay, so it's the 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 southern part of Palestine is is made of Luat. Luat is regions. So the region of Gaza, which had do the history, you will have the governor governor of Gaza, the government of Beersheba, and the government of Hebron. These are the main southern three areas of of Palestine. These are considered the southern garrisons of Palestine. This area has always had armies coming through it in order to 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 participate in the political decision of 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 the area. Armies who fought against the British management and British occupation, uh, colonialism when it came in, in in the time, and armies that fought against also the Turks that came from from these uh, from these three areas. And these were very active cities before the forty eight, and these were a part of the stab the, the part of the civil life and civil movement of Palestinians who were trying to create. A country for themselves in the 48th and trying to liberate from occupation that were uh, were coming and regimes that were taking their political decision all all the time like what was happening in 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 egypt against the, the british management also and then algeria against the french occupation also and then in libya against the the italians when they were colonizing these areas it was happening in palestine also these were active cities like jaffa like haifa they had and newspapers being published in them. They had uh, oranges being uh, uh, sold to, to ports in, uh, in Europe. And uh, for example, the thing about the Naqab is that they used to plant, what do you call the thing that you create beer from? Yes, barley. Yes, the barley was coming from barley, the Naqab, which was a very good, uh, very, very famous uh, material that the barley of Al Jammami, which is a demolished town. Of course, we didn't know they were creating beer because it's haram, but we were just selling the barley. Okay, so <laughs> history, <laughs> and it was active. So the point is again uh, that these cities, these cities are historical. They have a long history. Yes. And Hebron and Khalil have have histories. I think most people even understand. But even Ben Sabah, you know, these are places. These are these are metropolitan centers that were part of yes. the Palestinian history. They were part of Palestine. And had, had nothing to do with the Zionists making the desert bloom or developing or, or, or anything remotely like that. And there was a rich Palestinian political life. And once again, I want to go back to the genocide. 
outside of outside of what is taking place in Gaza right now, but the context of all of Palestine being subjected to genocide, ethnic cleansing, and apartheid, all three of which are crimes against humanity. So to connect all of that and remember that this is this is part of all of that and what you're describing happening now in modern times in the Naqab is exactly part of these three crimes against humanity. Yes, so it's it's one. The idea is that wh wherever you are a Palestinian in Israel, if you have Israeli citizenship, Israeli citizenship or Portuguese citizenship or American citizenship, if you're a Bedouin Palestinian in Naqab, you're treated as a Palestinian. If you try, even if you dye your hair pink or uh, whatever you do, you will still you still better. You're treated as Palestinian uh, in everywhere, and we are not ashamed of that. And the idea is, we have been expressing the suffering of the people, because yes, people are suffering, and people are living living under cruel situation. People are living of a better dreaming of a better life, but when you go ask that that Bedouin sheikh living in that very far away town, like the one you visited, Miko, and you were driving very slow. And uh, uh, if you go ask that sheikh, what do you want from Israel? Who's living in a tent still, and he has his whole family around him. And I've done that. We've been there and we've done that. He would tell you only, I want them to leave me alone. He would not ask for electricity, not ask for water. He would say, I just want them to take their evil away from me. Like, I don't want them to demolish my house. Okay. People, uh, the people of Al-Naqab, are, we are very... Uh, 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 we we are very used to to the desert. I've been living in a city my whole life, and I'm dreaming dreaming of the the desert. I'm dreaming dreaming of raising my own horse and and having my a few goats and and, and seeing my camel, uh, and raising my children in a connection with the land because this goes through your DNA. And I'm I'm not renting from anybody anything. I I know I am connected to the land, and I know I've inherited the land, and I know it's my right, and I know that I will not beg for my rights. Also, I'm part of a very uh, of a very stubborn, uh, rebellious community, which is the Palestinian community and people. And this is my rights. And I'm not asking for them. If, if you want to be racist against me, if you want to demolish my land, that's because that's who you are. But I'm not going to beg you for, for a better life. I'm going to demand a better life. And I'm going to protest for a better life. And I'm going to take it someday, one way or another. Uh, I think, uh, yeah. I think that's a great place to end. I, I, I think you. I'm, you know. I, I think this is exactly the, what people needed to hear. I think that's, uh, like you say. I think the Palestinians in general, the Palestinian Bedouin community, have nothing to apologize for, and uh, their rights are theirs. Their land is theirs. And um, and Miko, can I make a demand before we we end? Please. Yes. Because so we, so we have been talking about al Naqab, but we have been given. I, I, I'm sure you have given Gaza a lot on your on your platform. But there is a genocide happening, and uh, nothing is important. We are not important. The Naqab is not important today. Uh, not any other case in Palestine is important, except people who are being uh, erased in Gaza and the, the crimes against humanity, uh, religion, and, and every ethical uh, value that there is in, in the world is being fought against in Gaza. These dark people are killing children, are demolishing and burning houses, and this is paralyzing every Palestinian, every human there is. If anything you can do for anywhere around the world is to push and make pressure on your politicians and to make pressure on, on the media and use any tool you have in order to help expose uh, these criminals. Uh, nothing is important but Gaza today, and I hope you can make any effort for people who are listening to help people in there. Thank you. This is Rafat Abayesh, my good friend and activist in the Naqab in Southern Palestine. Uh, you're listening to the, you were listening to the Mikopelad Hour. I'm Mikopelad. 
stay tuned coming up is soul conversations and i will be seeing you next week thank you